Hi, everyone. It's good to be with you again. I'm never sure in this recording format whether to wish you a good morning or a good afternoon or a good evening, since I'm not sure when you listen to the message. Uh, I know I won't wish good night, as that would give a license to sleep. Uh, we are going to be in one of the Psalms this morning, but before I look at that subject, uh, I would just like to take the opportunity for Joyce and I and the whole family to thank each and every one of you for your prayers for Kristen, our daughter Kristen, and her husband Cameron, as uh, we have been walking through with her through difficult times of surgery and radiation and chemo for the last many months. Uh, we are so thankful for your prayers and uh, the answers to them, and we trust the Lord for his full and complete healing. We don't know what the future holds, uh, but praise God we know the one who holds the future for us, and our confidence and trust is fully in him. For the last few weeks, we have been going through the Psalms, and a number of different brothers have been looking at Messianic Psalms and the promise of the Messiah. Uh, today, the passage is from a Psalm, but it, the subject is a little bit different. The Psalm I've chosen is Psalm 11, and the verse is verse 3. And we will read the whole psalm shortly, but it's a verse that seems to reflect the really unprecedented times that we are living in today, not just in this country, but globally. Psalm 11 verse 3 in the New King James Version, which I currently use, it reads, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The NIV has the same verse as when the foundations are being destroyed. What can the righteous do? And the NLT, the New Living Translation, says the foundations of law and order have collapsed. What can the righteous do? And that last translation in particular seems to reflect the times that we live in today. If you look at our own country for the over 70 straight days of violence and riots, in Portland every night, in uh, the south side of Chicago, almost every weekend about 50 people being shot, a number of killed, violence in Seattle, violence in New York, and many other cities. And it seems uh, law and order has collapsed, and local and state authorities uh, in these cities don't do or don't seem to want to do much about it. And uh, all around the globe, a tiny virus, the coronavirus or COVID-19, has changed the lives and livelihoods of people and governments across the spectrum of society at all levels. So David's question in this verse, in this psalm, seems to definitely be written for us today, doesn't it? Now, the exact circumstances of the writing of this psalm are not certain. It is written by David. For much of his life, he, was, he had enemies around him. For the first part of his life, before he was, became king, he was constantly on the run from King Saul. Uh, later on, he continued to have enemies, including his own son, Absalom, from whom he had to run. Uh, perhaps this question that David asks is in response to some of his advisors who are urging him to flee from Absalom. Now, let's read this short psalm. It's only seven verses, Psalm 11. Uh, let me read it. I'm reading from the New King James. Verse 1. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow, 
they make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds the upright. Let's just look to the Lord before we look into this word. Father, we just thank you for the word, thank you for the freedom we have to look into it. Thank you that your word brings light and life to us. And just uh, pray that you would bless the thoughts that are shared this morning, that uh, as people listen to this recording, that uh, your spirit would work in their hearts. And as we think of all that's happening around us, help us to know that we have one true, sure foundation. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the question here in verse 3 is really a series of questions uh, uh, when the foundations are destroyed. So the question is, what are the foundations? How are they being destroyed? Who is trying to destroy them? Who are the righteous? And what can they do? Now, before we just get into that, I'd like there are a few translations that render that verse as, when the foundations are destroyed, what is the righteous one doing? In other words, uh, seeming to imply that what is God doing in all of this? But most commentators, and I, I'm taking the text that it applies to people, the righteous God's people. What can God's people do? Now, that's such a vast subject, but in the few minutes that we have this morning, uh, I can only skim the surface. So the first question is, what are the foundations? What are the foundations? And uh, I'd like to bring two uh, pictures or vignettes uh, before we look at that, uh, the first one comes from uh, Rabbi Zacharias, uh, who recently went home to be with the Lord. Many, many years ago, when he was at one of the Veritas Forums at Ohio State University on the campus, he was given a tour of one of the buildings there. It was the Wexner Center for Performing Arts. It was built uh, at that time, and the tour guide was saying it was, it was touted as the world's first postmodern deconstructionist building. There were pillars in there that seemed to have no, no purpose, random pillars not holding anything up. There were stairways that did not connect floors. There were stairways that just went to nowhere. And the tour guide said the building was built to reflect the chaos and the randomness of life. And after the tour was over, Ravi said, I have just one question. He asked the tour guide, did the architect do the same thing with the foundation? And the whole group laughed, including the tour guide. You see, even secular postmodernists know that a building needs to have a solid foundation. Now, the second uh, vignette is uh, we're coming up to September 11th fairly soon. All of you have seen pictures of the Twin Towers that came down and the destruction for many, many months, the mangled concrete and steel girders that were there. Those steel beams went down hundreds of feet into solid bedrock and yet were destroyed completely. You see, the point is this. There is a limit. There is a limit to all human foundations. Now, is there one foundation that will never, never, ever give way? And the answer is an unequivocal yes. Yes, there is. The prophet Isaiah, in chapter 28, verse 16 of Isaiah, 
and that's a messianic prophecy, says this. So this is what the Sovereign Lord says. See, I lay in Zion a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who trusts him will never be dismayed, and some translation says will never be disappointed. A few weeks back, Brother Shiju spoke on this precious cornerstone at the Bible R. So the uh, first, the three foundations I'd like to quickly go over. The first one is the foundation of God and his word. Second one is the foundation of family and society. The third one is the foundation of morality and accountability. Let me say that again. The foundation of God and his word. The foundation of family and society. The foundation of morality and accountability. And really the latter two depend on that first foundation. Some of you probably saw recently the splashdown of the SpaceX capsule. I think it's after a period of 45 years that we've had a U.S. Uh, space capsule splashing down. Uh, during the Apollo heydays, uh, prior to landing on the moon, there were a number of missions that were like a trial run going to the moon and coming back. On December 24, 1968, as they came around the far side of the moon for the first time and saw this blue globe, the blue orb of Earth hanging in space, the crew of Apollo 8, as Bill Anders, James Lowell, and Frank Borman, read, said this. They read from Genesis 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. That is the only thing that is a sure and true and solid foundation, and the only thing that can put things in the right perspective when we see all that is happening in the world today. In the beginning, God. In the beginning of our lives, in the beginning of our families, in the beginning of our communities, in the beginning of our country, in the beginning of the world, is God at the forefront. We know that's not true, is it? When the psalmist in Psalm 8 says, When I consider the heavens, the works of your hands, the moon and the stars you have created, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? The transcendence of God, the absolute transcendence of one who created this marvelous universe, and yet his nearness, that you are mindful of him and you visit him, and he did. His nearness in the person of Christ who came and dwelt on earth for a time. It's no wonder that Satan tries to destroy and remove those foundations. He tried it during Jesus' life. He tried it at the cross and failed as Jesus rose again on the third day, victorious over Satan and sin and hell and death. Today, we have removed God from our schools, we've removed him from our universities, we've taken him out of the public forum. And then why are we surprised that the other foundations of family and society, morality and accountability that really depend on the first foundation are collapsing? Recently, in response to some Christians talking about praying in our country in view of all that is happening, some of our elite news media laughed at such a useless endeavor. Shocking, isn't it? The foundation of God in the beginning. Secondly, the foundation of his word. Right in the Garden of Eden, Satan began to attack God's word. He asked Eve, did God really say? And the outworking of that question has continued through the millennia and persists even today. How can you claim that the Bible is true with all the contradictions in it? Or how can you claim that there is only one way to God? Or my God wouldn't be like that. I don't have time to go over why I believe and know the Bible is absolutely true. 
but just uh, written by multiple authors from all walks of life, written over a span of 1,600 years with one unifying theme, the historicity of the recorded events in Scripture, the hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. You know, we all need to have a basic knowledge of Christian apologetics to give a defense of the gospel with gentleness and respect, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3:15 and 16. The Bible is the only book, let me repeat that, the Bible is the only book that answers the four fundamental questions of all humanity, of origin, where did I come from, of meaning, why am I here, of morality, how should I live, and of destiny, where am I going. All those answers are found in Scripture. The songwriter writes, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. In his excellent word. In Matthew 7:24, the Lord himself said, Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. So my question to you this morning is, Is God and his word your only and sure foundation? Do you read his word? Do you meditate on it? Do you apply it? Do you live it in your lives? Many years ago, the organization Promise Keepers did a survey of pastors uh, who had either you know, strayed from the faith or backslidden and asked them the reason why they thought that had happened. Now, all of them read, they did read scripture, but they also read a lot of good Christian books and everything else. And the number one reason they quoted is not enough time in the word of God. They used to read a lot of good books by Christian authors and other commentaries and such, but yet not enough time in the Word of God. From a personal standpoint, I confess of so many wasted years in my youth without regularly reading God's Word. How thankful I am today, as I get older, that I have this privilege of reading through. This is about the 20th year of reading through the Bible every year, and it's been an absolute blessing. Firstly, the foundation of God and his word. Now, the secondary foundations, in a sense, the foundation of family and society. Now, in the Garden of Eden, after God created Eve, he brought her to Adam, and God himself instituted the basic unit of family, one man and one woman. Genesis 2.24 says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And Jesus affirmed that in the New Testament when he was talking to the people around, to the Pharisees and to his disciples. God instituted this pattern of marriage, and it was to be a reflection of a divine relationship of Christ and his bride, the church, which was to come. Marriage, one man and one woman, is not just a result of millennia of tradition. It was instituted by God. Today, in our society, not only has traditional marriage in our country disintegrated with over a 50% divorce rate, but by law, the parameters of marriage have been changed to include other relationships, same-sex relationships. In fact, some years back, uh, some states were even considering defining a family to be made up of more than two parents. Now, functionally, that might be true in a lot of our families because there are broken marriages and remarriages, and there's a number of step-parents involved with children. But the consideration they were giving was to perhaps having more than two parents at any given time, that you could have three people taking care of kids. Thankfully, as far as I'm aware, that has not happened yet. Talk about foundations being destroyed. 
One is just to turn on the TV or one smartphone to look at the daily news to see all the violence and people who are trying to destroy our society and government as we know it. Our TV shows, our reality shows, we have lost our sense of shame as a society. Let me say that again. We have lost our sense of shame as a society. Again, to quote Ravi Zacharias, he said, there is nothing so vulgar, no horrific in society that you cannot find some university professor somewhere who is willing to rationalize and defend it. When one no longer has the primary foundation of God and his word, it's no surprise that the secondary foundation of family and society is breaking down. Let me say that again. When one no longer has the primary foundation of God and his word, it's no surprise that the secondary foundation of family and society breaks down. Now, the third foundation of morality and accountability, of morality and accountability. Again, going back to the Garden of Eden, when Satan comes to comes and lies to Eve. God had said in the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And Satan comes and says, you shall not die. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. I've been told that the word translated knowing in that scripture can also be translated, and in other parts of scripture, the same word is used for the concept of determining. It can also be translated as determining good and evil. And isn't that exactly what's happening in our society today? When we get away from the fact that in the beginning, God, the fact there is an absolute moral lawgiver and that there is a moral law, then each one determines their own morality. In the 1960s, the concept of if it feels good, do it, became very popular, whether it was related to drugs or sex or something else. And that carries on even today. At one of the university forums, uh, again, quoting Ravi Zacharias, and it's in one of his books, I believe, he was going back and forth with a student, a young college student, who was arguing that there was absolutely no such thing as evil. And Ravi said, let me ask you a graphic question. If I brought a newborn babe in here and chopped him or her into multiple pieces, would you consider that evil? The student thought for a while and said, no, I wouldn't like it, but I don't think I can call it evil. Shocking, isn't that? Should it then be surprised that we see many educated college students on the streets assaulting assaulting law enforcement officers today? After all, there's no such thing as evil, according to them. Years back, the Harvard Business School suspended its class on ethics because they did not know whose ethics to choose to teach. I'm not sure if they reinstituted it now. It should be obvious that there is a logical connection between God and morality. Because if you don't have a moral law and moral lawgiver, whose morals do you choose? Who do you follow? And who are you accountable to? On this issue of there being no uh, the logical connection between God and morality, uh, Some years back, the social critic and conservative host Dennis Prager was debating atheist philosopher Jonathan Glover. And Jonathan Glover absolutely denied the connection between God and morality. He said there's absolutely no connection. And they were going back and forth on this. And then Prager said this, Dr. Glover, suppose you were driving in the streets of L.A., you had rented a car from the airport, and you were heading to your destination on the freeway. And it was turning twilight, it was getting dark, and Suddenly on the freeway, all the lights in the car lit up uh, 
and something seemed to be wrong with the car, and so you didn't really know what to do. You pulled off the nearest ramp and came off the ramp and into the, an area of town that seemed abandoned with warehouses and no one around, and you'd heard of crime in L.A., and you were a little anxious about it, and, and you pull off and you stop and trying to decide what to do. When suddenly, a little, while, a little ways away, one of the warehouse buildings, the door opens, and a number of young men of all races, wearing leather jackets, talk, talking and laughing to one another, some of them carrying batons in their hands, and, and they suddenly see your, you and your car, and they start walking towards you. And then the Prager asked this, Dr. Glover, as you wonder if something's going to happen to you, would it or would it not have made a difference to you if you knew that those young men were coming out of a neighborhood Bible study? The whole audience laughed, and even Dr. Glower had to admit that yes, it would have made a difference. You see, there is a logical connection between God and morality. But however, in our society, not only is there no moral absolute, so as a corollary, there is no moral accountability. In today's context, violent protesters are not even charged by prosecutors, and even if they occasionally get charged in many states with no cash bail laws, they are back on the streets and continue to commit violence. There is no accountability in our society. It's always someone else's fault. And uh, we, are the, we have the distinction of being the most litigious society in the world today. If you've ever been involved in a traffic accident, you will be inundated with letters from law offices wanting to represent you and get compensation for you, even if you were in the wrong. Now, many years back, in response to an article in the Times of London entitled, What's Wrong with the World? What's Wrong with the World? G.K. Chesterton replied to the letters to the editor in reference to your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. That's where the answer begins, doesn't it? With each individual. You know, I haven't really thought of the moral law in, in this light. The difference between the moral law in the Bible and all other moral laws, whether it's in Islam or Hindu Vedic teachings or in Buddhism, all the other moral laws separate humanity. That is, they have people trying to keep the moral law at various levels. Why does the moral law in the Bible unify all mankind? Because it absolutely levels the playing field. Why so? Because no one can keep that moral law perfectly. Romans 3 verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, God's standard. So it brings us all to the same level. And we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Praise God that God did send His Son to be the Savior of the world. Luke 2 verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And to Joseph, the angelic message was, You shall call His name Jesus, because He will save His people from their sins. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. We thank God we have a Savior. So when we move to the rest of David's question, We've talked about the foundations being destroyed of God and his word, of family and society, and morality and accountability. And yet, that one foundation, the first foundation, can never be destroyed. 
So what can the righteous do? So the question is, who are the righteous? In Psalm 24, God, uh, David asks this question, Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And who is that? None of us could be that in our own strength, could we? We're all sinners. And yet, there is a righteousness, as Romans 3 tells us. There is a righteousness that comes apart from the law, a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we are declared righteous. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have access into the grace in which we now stand, Romans 5. Only those who have been washed, cleansed by the blood of Christ and clothed in his righteousness are declared righteous. The songwriter has it right in, uh, on the song, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So let's go to the second part of our message today. So what can the righteous do? Now, there are many examples in Scripture of those whose circumstances in life led to what have seemed to be the foundations being torn away from them. Think of Joseph and being torn away from his family, sold into slavery, coming to Egypt, in prison for long before God elevated him to the second highest post in the land. Think of Moses growing up in the palace and then having to flee to Midian, and then God calling him back. But the lessons I'd like to look at, three simple lessons today, are found in the book of Daniel, and from Daniel and his friends. And there are many valuable lessons we can learn from their lives and examples. Uh, Corey Moorfield has brought us many wonderful lessons from Daniel previously. If you had to give a title to it, uh, I would say maybe it could be titled Lessons Teenagers Can Teach Us. You see, it's quite likely that Daniel and his friends were teenagers when they were carried away from their parents, their families, their neighborhoods, and their country, from everything they had known and been familiar with, and carried away to a foreign land as captives. Talk about foundations being destroyed. How did they live? How should we live when the secondary foundations are destroyed? Three simple lessons I'd like to bring today. Where is our line of dependence? Where is our line of resistance? And where is our line of confidence? Firstly, the line of dependence. What do we depend on? You know, in chapter 2 of Daniel, we see King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And he wanted the astrologers and the magicians to tell him both the dream and the interpretation. At least in Joseph's case, uh, Pharaoh remembered the dream and they just had to interpret it. But here, uh, the magicians and astrologers had to both tell the dream and had to interpret it. And they, they told the king, that's not possible, only the gods can do that. In anger, the king orders all of them, including Daniel and his friends in the palace, to be put to death. So Daniel gets the chief steward to get a reprieve for him and his friends so he could try to get the king his answer. And what is the first thing Daniel does? The first thing he does is call his friends together, and they all pray to God for his mercies concerning the dream. So the first lesson to us, perhaps, is just the simplest lesson. When the foundations are being destroyed, are we as believers in earnest prayer for our country, 
our local, our state, our federal authorities? And do we beseech the Lord for his mercies? You see, when we gather together for prayer or in our individual prayers, we often bring medical requests, travel requests, uh, missionary requests. But are we praying earnestly for our country? The prayers of a righteous man avails much, Scripture tells us. We need to be in earnest prayer for our country and its leaders. Now God in his mercy reveals the dream and its interpretation to Daniel, and he goes before the king. And the king asks him if he could tell him the dream and its interpretation. Uh, And Daniel's answer is very telling. You know, Daniel could have said, yes, king, I can. He did not say that. This is what he said. Daniel replies to the king, no man can do it, chapter 2, verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has revealed it to me. That answer, no man can do it, there is a God in heaven. In the beginning, God. When the foundations are being destroyed, don't ever forget, never forget that there is a God in heaven who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hallelujah. In Psalm, David didn't forget that either. In Psalm 11, verse 4, the verse after the passage we are meditating on today, verse 4 of Psalm 11 says, The Lord is in his holy temple, He is on the heavenly throne. In other words, he is sovereign. This past Wednesday at prayer meeting, uh, Bill and Joy Carrera, missionaries in Peru, were sharing about the journey they've been through this last year and a half or so after Joy's uh, diagnosis of a malignant melanoma and and just how wonderfully God has led them through that journey. And at the end, Bill said, you know, there are a lot of promises in Scripture. We read God as a rock, our strength, our, all of the promises. And he said, we know all of that to be true, but this last year and a half, we've realized how wonderful, how true those promises are. They're real. There is a God in heaven who looks down on earth. Isaiah in Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And and through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. What should the righteous do? Is our line of dependence on God and God alone. One of my many favorite New Testament verses is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It begins with the word, therefore. Why is that? Because in that chapter, that glorious chapter on the resurrection, Paul takes us through the wonder, the glory, the reason, and just all of the results of the resurrection, and then our future state of what a glorious body we will have. And then he ends that chapter with, therefore, in light of the reality of all of that, Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. And what is the work of the Lord in each of our lives? It is whatever the Lord has placed you to do, whether it's a teacher, a homemaker, an engineer, an IT person, a lawyer, a nurse, a doctor. Do faithfully to the best of your God-given ability. Don't let eroding societal foundations prevent you from doing the work of the Lord that he's given you to do. Now, not only is God in heaven, he has promised to always be with us. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. before the Lord uh, rose, uh, ascended to heaven, he gave this wonderful promise to, to uh, his disciples, Lo, and applies to us too. Matthew twenty eight twenty. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
always to the end of the age. I love the story of G. Campbell Morgan visiting this elderly lady, a widow, his parishioner. And he was uh, talked to her for a while, then he read some scripture, and he ended with this verse, same verse, Matthew twenty-eight twenty, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he looked at her and he said, Mrs. So-and-so, isn't that a wonderful promise? And she looked right back at him, and she said, no, it's not. And he was kind of <laughs> shocked to hear that response, and And then she said with a twinkle in her eye, No, Mr. Morgan, it's not a wonderful promise. It's wonderful reality. It's wonderful reality. I live it every day. Where is our line of dependence? Secondly, line of resistance. Line of resistance. Going back to Daniel chapter 1, when Daniel and his friends are brought to the royal palace and given wonderful, probably delicious food prepared by five-star Babylonian chefs, Verse 1, verse 8, it says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Now, there could be a number of reasons for that. Uh, Maybe the food was offered to idols first. Maybe the blood was not drained away properly from the meats. Other reasons. But it reminds me of another young man who was taken away, foundations destroyed around him. A young man who wound up in Potiphar's household in Egypt. When Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him, when they were alone, Joseph drops his coat and flees, resolved not to define himself. He said, how can I commit this sin against God? Dear ones, young or old, where is mine and your line of resistance? We live in a time when temptation is all around us, appealing to our eyes, our desires, our instincts, our egos. And especially during this COVID pandemic time when many of us are at home, for prolonged periods, often on our computers, where is our line of resistance? The fastest-growing addictions today are internet pornography and internet gambling. Galatians 5, verse 16 says this, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Romans 12, verse 1 Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's something that we do every day. We present our bodies a living sacrifice. Now, our old man and new man are in constant battle. Which man are you feeding or allowing to rule your lives? Thank thank God that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, in light of all that's going on in the world today, may I also briefly suggest some, without much comment, some additional things we need to resist as God's children. Resist an attitude of apathy, a, a kind of a whatever attitude. Resist the temptation to just be in a perpetual attitude of lament or despair on all that's going on around us. Resist the temptation to be cynical about everything and just throw up our hands in frustration. Resist the temptation to anger and vilifying those that we may not agree with on the political spectrum. Resist the temptation to have a holier-than-thou attitude towards other believers we may not think are being biblical in their lives or actions. Jesus uh, condensed the 613 laws that the Jews had accumulated into two things, the two greatest commandments. In Luke chapter 10, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and strength and soul and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest things. It says everything else rests on that. Be loving towards others. Resist the temptation 
to be condemning and uh, angry and confrontational all the time. And walk in the Spirit and present your body as a living sacrifice. Line of resistance. Thirdly and quickly, the line of confidence. We move to Daniel chapter 3. And here it's not Daniel, but his friends, who we know better by their Babylonian names, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The setting is the king created a large image of gold and orders all the people in his kingdom to bow down to that image. Now, when Daniel's friends refused to bow down, uh, they're condemned to be put into the fiery furnace, and they're given a chance to recant. And uh, that's the setting of verses, chapter 3, verse 16 and 18, their reply to the king. When he tells them if they don't, they'll be put into the fire. They say this to the king, Our God whom we serve is able to serve us, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image you have set up. Now that was not a fatalistic whatever will be maybe attitude, but it was rather, I know God, you are in control, so that regardless of the outcome, I am going to trust you and will not stop serving you. Many of you have been reading the blog that our doctor, uh, daughter Kristen writes on Caring Bridge. One of the things she recently wrote, she said, God has healed me both physically and spiritually in so many ways during the past six months. I fully believe that he is capable of restoring every single tiny branch of my facial nerve if he wants to. But if he doesn't, that's okay. And uh, the rest of it was that she continues to trust. So where is our line of confidence? Have the circumstances around the globe or specific circumstances in your life, whether it's an illness in you or your family or friends, whether it's loss of a job, whatever difficult trial you are going through, has it robbed you of your confidence? Daniel's friends didn't. They trusted God. Even if he did not rescue them, they would continue to trust him. And praise God, he did rescue them out of the fiery furnace. Now the prophet Habakkuk takes that a step further too as far as line of confidence. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 through 19, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the wines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, the foundations around Habakkuk's life and peace community were being destroyed. Verse 18 says this, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like the deer's feet and he will make me walk on the high hills. Not just confidence, but being joyful through difficult circumstances. Do we have that kind of an attitude? Yes, Lord, I know you are in control, our line of dependence. There is a God in heaven. Are we praying earnestly to him for things around us, for things in our lives, in our families, and do we trust him? Where is our line of resistance? Walk in the Spirit. Be steadfast, immovable, be loving. Do not be anxious or in despair. Where is our line of confidence? Do we trust Him regardless of circumstances? Can we be joyful through even the most difficult times? May the Lord grant us His grace to help, to trust and rest in Him. When the foundations are being destroyed, therefore, 
be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because Paul goes on to say, because your labor is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain. If you don't know this foundation, the foundation of God, may I urge you to come to him. The moral law unifies us in that we are all sinners, but there is a Savior who came to save you. And if you trust in him by faith, you will be saved. And you have eternal life and a hope for a future in him. And for those of us who know him, as we see all that's happening around us in locally and around the globe, may we continue to depend on him. May we continue to resist things we need to resist. And may our confidence be entirely in God and God alone. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the absolute foundation of God and his word. Thank you that you are in heaven and yet you live within each one of us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came down from heaven to die for our sins. And thank you that we are cleansed and washed, those who have trusted in him are cleansed and washed, clothed in his righteousness, and that you count us as righteous, that you see us in your Son. With all the things that are happening around us, help us to be confident in you, to depend on you, and to have full confidence in you that you will carry us through even as we await your return. Thank you for the word this morning. Pray it would be a blessing to those who listen. And we just ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.